Hello, and welcome to Art Robot Death. I'm your host, Timothy Reuter, uh, and it's a pleasure to have with me here today, uh, Chico McMurtry. Thank you so much for joining us. It's nice. Yeah, so to, to, to kick things off, I, I'd love to uh, start with you actually talking a little bit about the type of art you make, um, and then how did you get into being an artist? Right. Well, um, the type of work I've been in, uh, in engaged in for the last 35 years or so, I guess I would categorize it as robotic sculpture. And uh, I, make, I make machines that perform um, and in often, you know, initially in performative situations and now more like in interactive uh, installations where uh, you you go and directly engage these machines in an installation, and m most recently, the last ten years, it's been focused on on uh, soft machines. So these are um, most of them have been quite large, you know, larger than life, and they're um, they're they're they're, <laughs> they're robotics made with uh, soft elements as opposed to rigid elements like steel and motors. Uh, this is pretty much like air, air driven uh, soft machines that. That have the capacity to um, uh, elements of, can behave like muscle and bone at the same time. So they're, they're uh, immersive, transformative kinds of uh, experiential sculptures. Excellent, thank you. And you know, let's let's start a bit with your bio. How did you get into art in general? And then how did you get into making this very specific type of art? Because this is sort of an unusual art form um, that really, you know, requires, I think, a, a particular vision and personality. So we'd love to, to sort of just get your story. Yeah, delving into it. Um, well, I'm sitting um, where I'm being uh, interviewed here is, uh, I call it now the Amorphic Ranch, but it's the house I grew up in. And I think uh, my, my family had a, a, a whole range of, of um talents from engineering to sculpture, welding, photography, drama. My grandmother was uh, uh, the first, um, she, she ran a children's theater in Tucson, Arizona, hundred miles from here. My, my grandfather on that side was a coppersmith, right? So, and my, my, my mom comes from Sonora, Mexico, and she was, she had inherited all these traditional uh, mm -hmm. crafts like tapestries and things like that. And so, um, I think uh, while my family had, there, there was various troubles in the family because of the early death of my father when I was five, mm -hmm. the, the siblings would just throw stuff at me to do. And I, so I, you know, in, in a way I always immersed myself in creative processes from macrame to ceramics to mm -hmm. drawing. So I, I, I'd always done that. And um, in a way during, during school, I was rather troubled kid i was a rabble rouser you know i would organize mm -hmm. kids to leave classroom during the coffee teacher's coffee break stuff like that and um and part of part of it was like how do the teachers like how do i keep this kid engaged and so they would like one teacher threw me under the desk he would hand <laughs> me um, uh she, she bought me an ebony charcoal pencil and eraser and a rub stick and she had a whole pad of paper and, 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 and a, mass, a book from the Masters of the Renaissance, right? So mm -hmm. I'm under her desk the whole class period, 
drawing, uh, duplicating masterworks. And in a way, she saved my life, you know, this, this, this teacher. Wow. And, uh, you know, so there was there was all these great opportunities uh, that kept getting presented to me when I was younger to encourage me to keep doing that. So I, I've always mm -hmm. that's how it started. And then, of course, there's a long way from being a kid under a desk trying to maintain some self-control to being, you know, a globally renowned robotic uh, pioneer in, in the robot arts. Um, so how, how did you make that uh, that journey? I got a, a, a full ride to go to uh, undergraduate school. And uh, at one point, uh, what happened is, is interesting. I, I um, while studying the history of performance and the history of art, I, um, I found myself um, not completely captured by the art department. I was very interested in dance. And so, mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't interested. I was doing these endurance performances influenced by the, the Yaki Pascual uh, dances mm -hmm. in Tucson and Phoenix. The 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 the, the Yaki's uh, do this deer dance where they reach animal state. I was very interested in these sort of primal uh, acts, you know, rites of passage kinds of perf endurance performance things. So I was doing those performances at the same time. I was moving away from painting my body. I started. I started. Uh, painting my body instead of the canvases, which began hmm. by by uh, applying the paint to my body as a as a brush, impaling myself into the canvases, walking away. You know, paint dries. My body's restricted. I'm like, wow, man, this feels wild. Go to the bathroom. I realize my body covered in paint is much more interesting than a physical, just a painting, right? Mm -hmm. So the act of pulling the skin off reveals the person underneath. And that whole process really feeds what happens in the next several years. Mm -hmm. Those skins peel off my body. They begin to find structure in the form of sort of life-size puppets. Looking at the life-size puppets, I delve really into anatomy and how the body works or how the body could work or how living things could work. So these skins become sophisticated. I, 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 um, I use these skins in animated films that, mm -hmm. that document both my performances and then sort of um, uh, I jump into this realm which could be categorized as special effects in film because I'm just like, well, I can do this. And so I just end up inventing all of these different ways of, uh, uh, of making things happen, you know? Mm -hmm in the medium of film. And then, so I, I, get into, I get into graduate school at UCLA. Chris Burden, the well-known performance artist who's since uh, passed away, really amazing artist. He sees these films and he offers me a, a four-year ride to UCLA to study new forms and concepts. Wow. So um, I, I, um, I uh, well, I, I arrived I arrive to that school and I'm like, well, what's new forms and concepts? And that's like, well, it's kind of exactly what you're doing. So um, I'm making machines. I, um, uh, my brother being an engineer um, by, you know, uh, he was, he always encouraged me because I was always interested in mechanisms and things, movings and sounds and all these things to befriend engineers. And so, I always had uh, dialogues or relationships with engineers at all times, you know, and those, those were my friends. Those were the people I talked to. And um, 
my work evolved because of because of those kinds of collaborations, right? So my uh, uh, my thesis show at UCLA was uh, my first. There was a series of nine machines, and my friend Miguel Miguel Varon, he was an engineer who wanted to become an artist. Mm-hmm. He uh, he built my first uh, master slave computer systems to run all of these machines. So each machine had sort of its own little computer and its own sensor. And my thesis show was was quite interesting because you 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 enter this room. And immediately you're swallowed by a 30 foot machine that pulls you into the room. And then inside of the room are these machines and the eyes, the eyes of the machine are cumbersome TV monitors mm-hmm. uh, encased in these spheres. And they play back the five, the, I mean, the, the four cycles of, of the films I had made in my, in my graduate work. Right. So, Anyways, there, there's there's my uh, my thesis show, which was uh, my first series of machines, and then um, at that point, uh, I follow my girlfriend to San Francisco, right? And mm-hmm. so you know what goes on there. So from from LA, uh, the down, the downtown art scene, I worked uh, a lot with my friend uh, Brett Brett Goldstone, uh, who you, sh- you should probably talk to. He was busy making machines. And we shared a space in downtown LA, and we did a whole bunch of uh, events, with the big, big, big machine performances in downtown LA before I went to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually, there's something you brought up that that's a theme that I, I want to go back to a number of times, which is, what do you think you as an artist need to know versus? being able to find other people to do something with you. You talked about, you know, your brother helping you, you know, somebody else during your thesis helping build. The the kind of art you do, you know, sounds like it was complex early on and it's only gotten more complex as time has passed. So how do you think about sort of what you're trying to teach yourself and what you're trying to recruit? Um, Well, I think you... It's interesting because um, there's certain people who who are able to take all these things on. Like, um, let's say in my case, uh, I've never been a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. I've never been a hardware software guy. The hardware software stuff has always just um, come to me through people who wanted to collaborate with me or people I, I sought out to collaborate with. Mm-hmm. And and uh, but what what um, what does what what I've always had is probably over ambitious ideas, and then it takes this big chunk of time to 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 manifest them, to bring them to reality, mm-hmm. right? So what do you recruit? What do you do yourself? And what your particular area of genius is? Oh, geez. Well, uh, that, by the way, was I was just letting the, this kid from Mexico, who, who's my intern, mm-hmm. uh, come in to the back because he's, he's learning how to build machines with me. So it's kind of this beautiful sort of passing the buck, you know? To somebody on the border, and if you if you turn this kid, you know, this kid's seventeen, you turn him on to this stuff, and he yeah. just just grow. It's 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 amazing. So that happened to me. So um, I arrive in San Francisco, and of course, and, and there, there's all the you know with some of the previous folks that you interviewed, uh, this this heavy you know machine art scenes going on there. And it's pretty, you know, that's pretty phenomenal. And 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 me at the time I arrive and I'm and I'm already making machines. I'm I'm very interested in in making machines about the human condition, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I had been hauling around in my Volkswagen van, uh, my primitive squatting man, which was the first machine I built. Just a, just a guy who uh, uh, is squatting and he stands up with a stick and he strums his belly. And his belly has a, a, a guitar pickup mic. And so when he tightens his tendons, he goes, bow, 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 and then he, then he sits, he stands and sits, he stands and sits. It's a, it's a very primal um, instinct. And, it, and, and um, I'm hauling that guy around in my van. And in the back, I have my tumbling man. My tumbling man is a, it evolved out of the notion of a, of a child somersaulting and the, and the pleasure of learning how to somersault, right? So this, mm -hmm. this very early machine is in, is in the back of my Volkswagen van and it just twitches, you know, I have no clue what to do to make this thing work. Um, so I, I spent some time out at the Headland Center for the Arts and I set up my primitive squatting man in the woods and I startle this guy and he loves it. And he takes me to the Exploratorium. He's an exhibit developer at the Exploratorium. His name's Ned Kahn and he's an amazing uh, artist. He, he built everything from like the tornadoes everybody's seen there to yeah. the tribute orbs. And the, the Exploratorium keeps on coming up in many well, of these interviews I'm doing. And I choice. love so, them. So my story about the Exploratorium is amazing because I basically, he makes an appointment I bring that guy in, I set him up on the shop, on the shop table, and uh, and then all the engineers gather and the exhibit builders and I run the thing and they're just, they're just, they just love it, you know? And so they kind of take me into the back door and I get to work at the, at this shop, right? And at one point they keep telling me about this engineer named Dave Fleming, <clears throat> this guy's, so, uh, at one point I meet him and then he sees what I'm doing and he just like cracks up, you know, and, and then he just kind of rolls up his sleeves immediately and gets in there with me, you know, and then he takes me to the back rotunda, which is, which is, this, it's amazing for a young artist. He takes me to this warehouse of inventory of, of dead uh, robotic components, right? Or industri in industry components, cylinders, motors, bearings, pieces of metal. And at that time, every single little component I got my hands on was like delicious, you know, it was yeah. like, wow. And so he taught me how to machine. I, I, you know, I cut down big cylinders to smaller cylinders. So over several months periods of time, while I was working jobs and he was, you know, engineering for the Exploratorium, we'd gather late night and um, I would keep working on the tumbling man. So on the night of his birth, uh, the tumbling man sitting underneath the welding table, which is probably like a 500 pound welding table. And we turn it on and the thing kicks the welding table up in the air. <laughs> it has this astonishing strength. And we're like, I'm like, whoa. And I hand him the controls. I'm like freaked out. And he, he proceeds to, um, he proceeds to coordinate this machine into somersaulting, you know? And I just stand back and watch, you know, at that first moment. And then, and eventually I, I, I end up doing it. And so the birth of this tumbling man uh, leads, they, they offer me an official residency and I'm an artist in residency. I get money, get a little budget. And so it's my first delve into, you know, this professional realm. And we do this whole series of performances at the rotunda, which is this stunning dome that echoes beautifully. And 
So one of the first things I said about doing is I build an earth for the tumbling man to break out of and then do the somersaults, right? So um, the earth is made up of, of all the continental plates and it goes together like a puzzle. So we do this performances. So the, this artist in residence, machine artist, um, starts to catch wind in the Bay Area. And uh, at the same time, uh, I didn't want to let go of my, my puppeteering actions within this. So the uh, electronics department helps me develop this first telemetry suit. Now this is 1988, 89. Mm -hmm. So I've got a suit on that I wear with a transmitter and a receiver. And um, the idea is that my actions are mimicked by the machine. Mm -hmm. So in fact, what happens is I end up looking more machine-like to get the machine to look human. And that was sort of a beautiful metaphor. So anyways, that's the first, uh, the first big, uh, big thing that happens to me. And then um, Everybody from Mark Pauline, Matt Heckard, you know, uh, Cal uh, Spieglitz to, you know, everybody in the Bay Area who has anything to do with theater and performance and even dance starts mm -hmm. to show up to these performances. And they're very, uh, and, 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 and all I want to do is keep them going. So I, I, I start making more machines. And um, the second one birthed was the uh, Tycho drummer. And that emerged out of the tumbling man smashing the earth open and the percussive qualities of I started making uh, drummers that would play to accompany them. And then the third work that evolved out of the exploratorium were the walking trees. I made a series of trees that were walking away and the walking trees were inspired by this notion of um, uh, the technological takeover and what that means and, and you know technology is taking over the world and and all the results thereof are threatening the trees so the trees are leaving they're getting out of here mm -hmm. so they're walking trees um so those performances play out and then uh, as as uh, that got me my first bit of attention and then it led to going to ars electronica winning a, a an award at ars electronica traveling all over europe and then figuring out how to pack these things up so that they can literally, uh, you know, tour. So that's when all of the, the touring began. Great. And so let, let's move on to a few other themes, you know, which is how do you think about the interplay between art and technology and what's really changed over time for you in that regard? I saw you you sent me that video of border crossers, which I want to dive into uh, more more deeply later on. But you you know sort of are showing off you're using an Arduino. Sort of there are all these things that are available now that you know really weren't available when you're starting off. So how do you think about that dialogue between the tools available to you and the what you want to create? Sure, like uh, the takeoff point for that would be actually that very performance um, at, at the Exploratorium. I was approached by um, a range of people who were doing kind of the computing end of things at the, at the, in the Bay Area. And um, at that time, the Arduino wasn't, wasn't in existence. And so all there were were, um, you know, these uh, super hackers, people who, 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 who were able to use uh, recycled the uh, technology, recycled mm -hmm. computers, and then reprogram to do the things you want to do. And at that time, 
you know, um, uh, the, that, that's what the machines began to use. And people came and approached me and we started working together and, and, and the computer enters the, the mm -hmm. performances on a, on a serious level, which begins to allow me to step back a little bit. And then we're, we're, we're activating the machines through the computers and, and uh, uh, it, it, it's pretty fascinating. It took a lot of software writing in those days. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of the engineers who was working with me, Geo Holmes, he came up with, um, he came up with a, what he called the MIDI box, which was a driving computer that you could, that artists could program. So he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to facilitate this. I'm going to step back from doing the programming and I'm going to let you guys work on it with Max or Studio Vision or mm -hmm. various different kinds of MIDI software. So MIDI comes into the picture, which is amazing because uh, several creatives who were working with MIDI entered the picture and began to program these shows. And, and it made it really uh, easy and the process became uh, less cumbersome, more creative. And, and so, uh, then, then the machine started really becoming musical. So, um, I think at that time, uh, and we had we managed to get uh, a lot of components from a automation uh, industry, like uh, people who built things for like for like Disneyland or or, or uh, Magic Mountain. These kinds of things. There were these these computer systems that had these hardcore relays boards that. You could you could write to them in different programs, and so all these series of machines uh, started to rely on donated technology, but but pretty advanced donated technology. And so um, then, of course, how to how to uh, make make that stuff uh, integrate with MIDI and Max MSP and all of those kinds of things became um, the way we worked for many many years, and then. Um, you know, fast. We, we 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 toured around Europe, and then we can fast forward at the moment to the robotic church performance, which is in Brooklyn, uh, in Red mm -hmm. Hook, and that's been set up for years now. That's running on this twenty-year-old computer system, and we're still running it the same way. While all these new developments are are, of course, we're going to the Arduino because the Arduino is literally being taught in school. Mm -hmm. So back in my day after graduate school, none of that was available at all. And so you'd have to go to like sort of engineering and computer uh, computer science to begin to work with that stuff. And today, I think it's, um, I visited numerous schools where the, you know, the, the kids are definitely able to take classes in, in Arduino, in architecture, in certainly in engineering. Sometimes they still use it, but, but, uh, uh, definitely in art, art departments around the world, um, uh, kids are learning Arduino. So we're like using the same thing everybody else is using, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess have your compute platforms change. I mean, this, this might be nerding out a little too much, but, you know, anybody can get a Raspberry Pi and probably that's more powerful than the, the full-on computers that you were using uh, in your early dance performances. Are, are there other tools that you found have really change the game in terms of what you can create now or or does it actually not make that big a difference it might be marginally easier well, I think the tools that, so yes um the three things are uh first of all the internet mm -hmm. having made all of that stuff available to every single person and being able to order your raspberry pi your arduino your driver board 
uh, you know, taking your rudimentary electronic classes uh, through the internet. So every single person out there, uh, and even uh, high school robotics classes, just like, uh, you know, the, the, the creation of, of uh, you know, uh, robot wars, which, which obviously Mark Pauline had a huge uh, influence in, mm-hmm. and just all this stuff that became, um, you know, media around the world. And then, you know, uh, all these new kind of kits that are out, you know, MIT graduates go out and produce these, these uh, kits that make, uh, make robotics accessible to kids. And so kids are growing up with robotics now. And, 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 and uh, my 20 year old intern, who's going to uh, RPI up in Troy, he's been here with me for a couple of months. He's, he's, he's just completely able to do everything in relation to what my machines need. He's 20 years old. He can program and, and today we're, we're, we're basically running these robots uh, with, with ra- advanced radio control consoles that, that uh, you know, we can't let them be wander autonomously, but we actually are able to control them in a real mm-hmm. uh, controlled way with radio, uh, ra- you know, radio control technology and stuff. So, um, yeah, there's been a, 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 a tremendous change. And so uh, I'm, I'm the... The, the 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 generation before me was was really interesting and innovative, and so like the two or three generations after me, mm-hmm. their ability to uh, you know go learn CAD, mm-hmm. uh, go get go get their components CNC cut whichever medium they prefer, just bolt them together or slide them together, versus um, the, the way that you know we were working, and I think all of these we are people that. I think people that you've uh, talked to earlier, I think they use CAD now. Let's say, but 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 I think I think um, the the work I like in this genre uh, uses kind of uses CADs when when necessary, but makes really important sculptural decisions in three dimensions in a traditional sense. You know, mm-hmm. so um, in a way, you kind of. Like okay, if I'm going to draw this in CAD, then then how you know where's the sculptural element going to uh, emerge from? Because when you make something with CAD, it looks like it was made with CAD. And so the biggest the biggest challenge is like, how do you how do you keep sculptural and use it as a tool to you know keep you up with with uh, uh, the deadlines or the you know the fast moving right. pace of all this other stuff? Yeah. So I think, you know, for, for the next segment of this conversation, I'd like to actually dive deep into a particular work of yours. And, and I think, you know, let's go with your newest stuff, Border Crossers. And just looking at your website, it's been very interesting to see the evolution of what you're doing and going from Numa World, where it really feels like you come into your own in being able to control these soft robotic elements and then border crossers sort of seems to take that and go a little political with it. I'd love to just hear how you, you know, came upon this idea and, you know, what is it in dialogue with either in your own work or in the world? Ah, thanks. Uh, Yeah. The, um, it's a very interesting transition. I, I grew up on the border, mm-hmm. and so I, I went to school literally uh, at a little little town called Naco, Arizona, and the Mexican co-city was called Naco, Sonora, Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. And in between these these two little towns was a chain link fence, a chain link fence, right? 
and that chain link fence had a big hole in it. And my friends from Mexico would come through the chain link fence hole and go to school with us, right? Oh, wow. Now that's, that's many years ago, right? So fast forward, slowly the border is getting fortified and there's different ranges of, of fences going mm -hmm. up uh, over the years. And then politics change and, and then I'm like, wait a minute, my, my family comes over, you know, this is sort of also very personal. My, my father was a, a, a stallion rancher hmm. and he had brought over my uncle from a little pueblito in Mexico called Cumpas Sonora. And these were professional cowboys. He brings them over, he immigrates them. They sign the papers, they pay their 30 bucks, whatever. And, and then the family starts coming over to work as professional cowboys. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, well, you know, so that that's that's my early years. And then I come back and then the, the border thing gets more and more intense. I hear stories about the tunnels and the this, that, and the other. And, and then at one point, uh, I get to take over this whole ranch because my brother passes away and me and my brother inherit it. And I, I restore this into a studio. And, and I, st I start thinking about these lights at night. At night, there's all these border lights mm -hmm. just in my distance, you know, in my. And so I start thinking more and more about um, how this technology, these, this inflatable technology applies to this notion of growing towers, structures that are able to manifest out of nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, the sculptures kind of look like these little poofy clouds, you know, moving around on, on a wheeled platform, but these poofy clouds or brain forms are able to become like robotic structures, rigid robotic structures. Mm -hmm. And um, the astonishing thing about the medium is you're able to make these things that are that are like a 24 inch pile grow into like 30 foot tall arches and stru structural forms that if you came across these structural forms from, from not having seen them, you're like, is that aluminum? Is that like white? What is that white aluminum? What is that made of? Right. And they're, 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 they're very top rigid structures. So, so part of it was like, so I had asked a friend of mine to take a photograph of the border wall. And I made this early Photoshop drawing that you'll see on a, on 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I envisioned uh, uh, three border crossers crossing from Mexico and three border crossers crossing America and forming this type of arced bridge form of, of light. And to me, that, that image has, has driven me for the last 10 years. And, and basically it's, it's this form that uh, it's, it's more importantly about like equality of mankind, right? This division that the fence creates needs to be circumvented, needs to be crossed, needs to be collapsed. Uh, uh, ellipsed and elapsed, um, and so uh, I've I've I've, ca I've carried on from there, you know, and so um, that, you know that was the vision. So how did that differ from from Numa world? I think part of what happened is at the moment when I've taken these things out of a gallery and indoor format, put them, put them outside, things changed drastically. Hmm. Probably most importantly is that. These are, these are inflatables and I'm taking them into very rough terrain. They're very fragile, uh, yet they're very strong. So it's this sort of duality of, of, of the, human, the human crisis itself that's going on on the board, you know? Mm -hmm. Lives are fragile. 
people who have been coming over the last several years uh, have been just, uh, you know, desperate for, for a new life. And part of it has everything to do with our, our foreign policy, right? Yeah. Why, why are they fleeing from America? Because of the, you know, there's, there's 37 million people around the world that it's in drawing here. 37 people around the world have been displaced by our war, right, alone. Yeah. So that looking at that alone is part of why we have this migrant crisis. So 10 years of working on the peace, the administrations have changed and the border policies have changed the whole time, right? Yeah. So currently, we've got this radical influx of, of, of people who have been waiting for this opportunity for this freedom. And that's why it's so overwhelming at the moment, right? Um, so, um, let's see, go ahead and ask you something. Sure. So, I mean, it's just you're, you're telling the tale very poetically. Um, you know, I, I'd be interested. So, you know, you're in the process of creating this. Has there been any reaction yet? Because I can imagine that, you know, maybe uh, – the border patrol might find it a little strange to have a robot driving up and suddenly inflating and and reaching over. Um, so, you know, what has been the reaction when you've brought this into the real world and, and what has been the reaction so far to the idea of this? Well, um, so first of all, there's 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 five of these machines now mm -hmm. and um, they've 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 been they've been developed in, in a sort of studio situation. Now we've taken them out in the field and we're testing the real uh, hardcore equipment to, 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 to be able to grow the border. In the film sequence, you see us arrive at the border. We, we drove parallel to the border mm -hmm. in that sequence and that's the most we've done so far. So we're, we're working on an exhibition in El Paso in Juarez and, and the producers of that exhibition are, are working the opportunity to do an actual crossing of the border southwest. And they, they monitor hundreds of miles of the border here. Mm -hmm. And you, th th this, this place is inundated with border patrol constantly driving around. And, and, and you literally were in the mix of it right here. So part of, part of what I'm doing with the film project is I'm taking the border crossers uh, out in a, in, a, in a trailer and, and starting to see how far I can legally push uh, them doing uh, various actions that I've outlined for the film, right? Mm -hmm. And, and um, if an opportunity allows itself for an uprising or possibly a crossing, it'll occur. However, uh, at the moment, you know, um, you can't get any like legal like okay on doing that you know? and since since there's been this administration shift you know uh i'm like wow did i miss my opportunity to get over the border when trump was 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 president and i'm like no it's, it's still the same kind of thing the same the same kind of suffering everything is still the same it was the same during obama you know yeah and so the, the thing about trump is just like building more you know the opportunity to build more fence to build his wall you know that's that's destroyed wilderness down here. That's a big a big part of what I uh, what I want to document in the film. Mm -hmm. So, um, but but the honest truth is the most important element is the challenge of me and the team that I've gathered around me getting these machines to work under these circumstances. It's been five years, right? 
So I think what, what begins to come of the project is what comes to me when I bring these things out, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I'll see what the opportunities allow to happen. Are you trying to stay within the law for this? Because I mean, some of the artists I've spoken to, like it seems to me they prefer to break the laws most of the time. I, I mean, I love my conversation with Mark Pauline about stealing shit, um, but it sounds like you are trying to do this within the the bounds of of what's legal. Yeah, I think Mark, you know Mark doesn't do that anymore, right? During that era. <laughs> really it worked it was it was it was it was I, I really doubt that he does it anymore because you know as he told you he really he's like he's like this special talent at like getting the most high-tech equipment available yeah. out there and like he just he doesn't he doesn't have to physically go into spaces things come to him now right yeah so uh no i'm not interested in breaking the law uh but i i'm also i'm i'm, I'm also not afraid to 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 move out of the perimeter of, mm -hmm. of the law uh, but I think what's interesting is there's been a lot of years to think about it. Mm -hmm. And those are the main questions people have. Are the Border Patrol going to arrest you and all that stuff? Well, I, you know, I'm not interested in having the Border Patrol arrest me. So I want to see what I can do within the finesse of what these machines bring, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're planning on shooting in Mexico and on America and in and around the border a lot, which is within the law. Right. So how you can fly a drone is within the law, right? Certain distance, et cetera. So if I were the Biden administration, I would actually want you to take your machine and go over the Trump built fences to show how ridiculous the previous administration is, even though, as you note, in many ways, there's just as much continuity in the actual policy, uh, or I mean, maybe that's not fair, but there is a, perhaps more continuity between the administrations than, than people uh, acknowledge. Yeah, you know, I had that thought just, just the other day uh, that, that uh, it would really benefit what they're trying to do, you know, because, because what they're saying is this is a humanitarian crisis. This right. crisis is, is um, something we have to figure out how to get a hold of because it, it, it got out of control because of the Trump administration, et cetera, right? So, uh, and they're also like, yeah, the coyotes are going, it's the open door policy, man. Let's get you guys in there, pay up the bucks because right. Biden wants you. And even, even if Biden's saying the same thing Obama said, don't come over because we're gonna send you back. Um, it, it's, it's looked at as an open door uh, policy because they're more tolerant. There's more tolerance in a way. So yeah, they have an issue that they have to figure out, but like on a trip when Kamala's down here, you know, the vice president's down here uh, to visit, I would love to have her over and, and show mm -hmm. her the piece and, and getting support for doing that action, uh, showing, showing it for what it is. It's about unity and peace and that all humanity deserves an opportunity to live, yeah. to not be tortured, not to suffer, et cetera, you know? Yeah, that would be great. Timothy, hook me up with that contact. <laughs> you have it. I'll I'll see what I can do. I uh, I'm just a lowly podcaster, but uh, maybe I'll find some magic. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the difficulty of making these platforms drive. So just to to nerd out a little bit, what actually is the driving platform and you know, are you, you mentioned it's sort of remote control, so it's not an autonomous thing. What, what is that actual thing that these are driving yeah, on? So, 
um, here's a great thing is that, so five machines, the way we've supported building them, first of all, has been through, you know, um, uh, the second one was built at the University of Michigan in the robotics and art department. Mm -hmm. The third one was built at the, uh, at the Academy of Applied Arts in Vienna. Mm. And then the, the fourth one was built at, at the, um, uh, was, was built at the, at the robotic church in New York and the um, Liberty Hall of Science in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, the, and, as well as the fifth one. So each of these have, have gotten support from different uh, university formats. And so as I build these things, I'm also teaching and turning the students of the these roboticists of the future onto how to make outrageously large, large scale things. And so every one of those people comes in, gives something to the project and, and, and they participate, you know, uh, the kids at the university, at all those schools, they've already taken courses in driving the Arduinos, right? They already mm -hmm. know about Arduinos. So I'm turning them on to other things that they might have done. They certainly wouldn't have worked on a 30 foot inflatable robot yet, right? So um, well, basically what, what we have is we have a, um, an approximately like 60 by 60 uh, vehicle that, that collapses uh, several inches smaller to be transported. And that vehicle, um, it's, it's an electric vehicle, mm -hmm. and it's got a 24-volt uh, lithium-ion battery system and then a 12-volt system to drive a bunch of valves. And on that system to drive these tubes is a, is a closed-loop servo system where, you, where, you're, where you're, taking, uh, you're monitoring the pressure on the tubes at all times and using that to close the loop. And then, of course, there's an Arduino with a shield with input sensors, error input sensors. And um, right. And so there's two wheelchair motors, which are very high torque motors to drive these things around. So you've got you, you, wheel, wheelchair motors with like wheelbarrow or, or motorcycle enduro uh, tires and literally just oversized casters for the front. Yeah, you're able to drive these in very tight circumstances, drive them onto a trailer, drive them in and out of storage. Uh, they never haul ass like take, they never really are are super fast. They're, uh, you know, you can control them, you know, up to a thousand feet away. Uh, so the radio transmitter and receiver are, are um, that took some work out in the field to get them to respond. But you have to be able to see the machine to run it. Mm -hmm. And your and your and your um, your control system gets feedback from the machine, which is in, indicated with LEDs, and so you know if that you're actually controlling the thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's it. And then there's a high-end pump, a German-made pump that's very small, that's capable of producing these in, you know amazing volumes of, of yeah. air and vacuum. So um, uh, having said that, that that. That's super simple. The work is in how do you get this thing to look interesting as a pile, mm -hmm. pile rising into uh, uh, this massive structure and, and uh, unraveling itself over the border, coming back, gathering itself so you can escape mm -hmm. and get the hell out of there in the event that you didn't have permission. But in any, any shape, you want the thing to gather and, and come back down and, and that every moment of the action as it as is as important as every other moment right yeah so how do you get this thing to not look awkward hold on so i'll be right back sure so here, uh, see here so this is a really early like prototype but what does I this love thing it. do right 
So this thing has to do this. So it's it's this, right? And then this is piled up too. So this this is, you know, like the early design is like this, you know, this hot rodded. It's like a it's like taking a scissor lift and putting it into Photoshop and distorting it into an arc, right? So um, this is the hardest part. And so the onboard technology versus how each and every one of these things gets up and changes. Um, so at the moment here at the, at the ranch uh, workshop, we've, you know, we've converted them all to 24 volt DC. We've, we've worked, we've in, in, implemented all of the radio control stuff. And every single one of the machines really differs from one to the next. I'm not the type that can manufacture six identical things over mm -hmm. six years, right? So they've improved, they've gotten better on one hand, but what happens is, most importantly, is that they evolve. And so they're really like five different characters. And the sixth one is gonna be built with students from Juarez, Mexico and, and El Paso. And so what I'm interested in doing then is I wanna make a, a boat border crosser. I wanna make one with like inflatable pontoons. Mm -hmm. It's that, that rides the Rio Grande and then shifts over to the left to try to get over. I'm thinking of, you know, that one's really gonna be different. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, it actually taking to the water as opposed to taking to the dirt. So how, how would that differ? Those are the kind of things that are super inspiring is like, how can I, how can mm -hmm. that be really different? How can I engage the participants in a way that they get a unique, a unique experience? How do I challenge myself? Right. Um, uh, all of that. So just a, a couple quick nerdy questions, you know, uh, I'm a very poor amateur roboticist, but very interested in these things. Do you use Ross at all in your work or have you considered it? And were you influenced at all by the Harvard Soft Robotics Project? Um, although you may have started doing some of this stuff before it was cool, it sort of seems, but. Well, I, I think all those guys are influenced by my soft robotics. Yeah. And um, they should be calling me up to get them to teach them how to build like gigantic size stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So no, it's, it's, in, it, that, that's kind of a joke, but, but uh, in a sense it, it, it's, it's, it's not because I, I, I think what's interesting is when you look at, um, you know, everybody from like the, you know, Boston dynamics stuff, where did they visually get their ideas? I think they look, I think all of these uh, engineering firms, and contemporary robotics companies look at artists for their influence. Yes. And so they're like, what do I want it to look like? Because they're really involved in like how to build the thing. How's it, how does it balance? How does, you know, what kind of software, all that. So no, to answer your, your nerdy question. No, I haven't, I haven't used that, but what's, what's interesting is um, I'm uh, I'm about to do another collaboration with uh, uh, UC Davis for an exhibition at the Beale Center for Art and Technology. Mm -hmm. So I'm really I'm really interested in in pushing the the, the, the these these parameters of self uh, self controlled balanced mm -hmm. machines, and I haven't you know the last five years I've really been um, like uh, in a sense I've been the lead engineer and mm -hmm. often I, I'm able to bring engineers in to work with me but there hasn't been that kind of a budget, so. I've been I've been struggling with getting these things to do what they're they're doing on their own, and I'm looking forward to the next opportunity 
to work with a real a real team of engineers again. Yeah. And so th- that, that opportunity in the next two years is going to, I'll be able to work yeah. with um, a whole team of uh, roboticists, biologists um, uh, at the University of California, Davis. So, um, you know, that's interesting. So uh, I like the, the one thing, I, you know, to answer the, the most important thing about the nerdy question is I like to build these platforms mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I like to hand them over to have someone else teach them how to do things, you know? Yeah. And that's the most intriguing thing because I think uh, they feed each other, right? So often what's, what's, what's missing in the academic uh, circles is is sort of wild and crazy ideas. Yeah. What creatives have is these wild and crazy ideas, but maybe not the full ability to implement them. So that is the the perfect transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, and do you ha- how how time constrained are you? I'm I'm just really yeah. So I, I'd like to talk about sort of the the community and company you built, uh, amorphic robot works, um, and sort of how that came about, what it is, and how you bring in talent or use that as a platform to create things. I had the idea to form this company after uh, my time at the Exploratorium because um, it was it was fantastic working with these engineers and, and uh, specialists in all these different aspects, these different fields. So I decided that my goal should be to create this company so I can collaborate with people find a way find a way to, to work with them to uh, pay them when there's a big budget to um, and 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 actually so there's been a a, a whole um, group of people who I've worked with for years mm-hmm. who are engineers who who have day jobs who, who come and work a, a little bit in the evening or what have you and um, but by, by, by the fact that they, they, you know, they have these other things that they're doing, they, they can contribute at different times and, and, and their work, their work kind of a, a accumulates. And then they, 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 they often are interested in, uh, you know, giving something that will continue to give later on in the years. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, a, kind of an example of where Amorphic Robot Works really reached a, a, a climactic moment. On the website, you, you probably saw the Totemobile, the growing car, right? Mm-hmm. So I had worked with all these engineers for many years, and sometimes it was there was there was a budget, often there wasn't. And in the year 2006, I had this massive commission, and I was able to bring in all these engineers who had worked with me to, to work like full-time, paid really well for three months. And um, if you look at the credit list on, on, for that project, there was in, an intense amount of people working on the project, probably six full-time engineers and, you know, three to four of them working full-time on CAD, prototyping, you know, all these team members who, who had toured around Europe came in from Europe. And so it was three months intense, intensively building the thing. And then three months in Paris to finish a, a, another phase of it. So uh, it's a super great way of, of uh, seeing how that worked. Prior to that, we had built this big, this big robotic landscape project uh, in, in England. And so several of these team members who had worked with me over time got an opportunity to go to Europe and work on this, on this giant project from the, from the ground up, you know? So um, in that team, uh, there's artists, 
who are aspiring artists. There's people who are just metal fabricators, professional welders, uh, you know, circuit designers, uh, Max programmers, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the original programmers were working with uh, Formula Fourth, which, which uh, you know, Formula Fourth C, you know, just all these different languages are, are building up all the different layers of, of, the, of the control system. Mm -hmm. Robotic Landscape had over 350 different mechanical elements all performing in this operatic, like one hour performance. Um, and so um, that, that was the year 2000, right? And then, um, so I, I think it's this real flexible group and like the most solid person in the group today is, is Louise who mm -hmm. manages the projects, you know? And, and uh, you know, she, she figures out how to fund things, how to organize things, you know, everything. So it's like me and her and whoever happens to be working you know, working with me at the time. Hmm. And uh, because the last four or five years have been within sort of university formats, you know, mm -hmm. so the engineers and the builders and uh, are within those, have been within those systems for the, for this project, you see. Right. And, and now, and I, I, and I just want to please complete yes. by saying that, uh, uh, I guess the last 10, not complete, but the last 10 years, uh, I've been since we set up the robotic church in Brooklyn. I've been working with a, 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 an engineer <clears throat> named Bill Bowen, who's developed uh, the, the control system uh, for these particular inflatable machines. So it's been me and him and other people who have worked with us. But he's sort of the core author of uh, the system that we're using in the uh, uh, border crossers. Great. And something that you've alluded to that I'd like to talk about a little more is sort of the economics of being this kind of, of artist, um, you know, both in the sense that, you know, what you do is very expensive compared to making pictures uh, or uh, paintings. And also, you know, how do you make it into something sustainable for your life? Um, you know, obviously you need food to eat and, and a place to live. And I don't know if you have children, but they may have uh, financial needs as well. So, you know, how does, how do you make art sustainable? Well, the good thing is all the machines I made are like children, you know, I always had this ambition of, you know, being raised Catholic to have like six, six kids, but it, that never happened. So in my fifties, I had my first one, she's six now. And that's, it's just fantastic. It's just like unbelievable to have a kid. Um, there's nothing like it, you know, and I missed out on it like all the others, but I have all these machines that I have to tend to continuously anyways, but, but um, uh, the way, you know, it's interesting because um, I've never been in the gallery world in, in, in the sense that I've never produced work to sell. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I had opportunities to sell the work, I didn't want to sell it because I'm like, if I sell them, how am I going to do these installations with these machines, right? So early on in Jap Japan, wanted to buy an installation of my first five machines. Hmm. They offered me this outrageous amount of money and I had no interest in selling it. They were like, why not? I'm like, because I won't have them anymore. And so early on, it became clear that I'm not building these things for sale. And I mean, there's been a... a you know, a lot of commissions 
and and not, not a lot of commissions, a, num a number of commissions for permanent works. There's one, there's one in um, in San Francisco at the Yerba Buena Gardens. It's been running for 20 years, and and I worked on these proposals for many. We we had uh, me and me and two of these engineer uh, artists who I've worked with over the years. We we won a competition in the city of San Jose for a climate clock, which <laughs> never got built. But we worked on it for three years, so that project was funded to develop it. And um, and so, really, like the last five years, I've gone from teaching formats. So mm -hmm. There's a budget for the machine. There's a budget for teaching. Uh, there's grants that, that that bring in money for the for the project. And then, um, and then you know, uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a landlord. Like a lot of artists I know, I'm a landlord. Uh, for two different places. So income comes in from having restored a house and fixed it and that kind of stuff. So you you get this sort of, um, and then uh, investing money, investing money, trying to make some money grow mm -hmm. to feed the feed the projects. So um, that's, that's kind of how it's done. And if there'll ever be sales, I don't know, but that would be, that would be interesting, you know, because uh, for me looking at sales, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to one one piece them out, you know. They have to sell as a body of art, mm -hmm. like this, this body of work, like the robotic church is fifty machines, right? And the computer system. So you gotta you gotta come up with enough money to buy those fifty machines from me, but also uh, promise to keep them restored and running well, yeah. right? So there's a whole contract about restoration and updating of technology that goes along with it. So. Um, the people who are in the sort of new media genre who have succeeded at selling things are like, there's a handful of them, you know, and, um, who would you say are the leaders in that, uh, group? Well, um, now there's, there's a, there's a, a Mexican Canadian artist named Rafael, uh, Hemmer, mm -hmm. Lozano Hemmer. And he, he, he sort of works on the cutting edge of technology. And he has a huge team that build these things uh, sort of nonstop. Mm -hmm. And he's really got down the, you know, the financial end of things. He makes he makes good money on them. Mm -hmm. He has super good uh, contracts to, um, you know, to complete his, his payment. <laughs> he has a mm -hmm. whole company. To fund. He he created a festival in Madrid called Vida Life. So before he really took off on his career, he had worked with artists, administrators got yeah. that whole business end of things down super well and then then you know so he's an idea machine he has this team of people who produce works he, he's a good example um out of bitforms in new york city steve Sachs has a series of uh, of artists who actually had to be that in order to be in his stable mm -hmm. so these are artists who are producing new media works who are producing them in a, in, a, in additions, like Danny Rosen, for example, and um, and they're able to he's able to sell these things to different collections with this sort of special contract mm -hmm. that includes maintenance. Maintenance is super important. So you you buy this piece, you got to keep it alive, or you can't buy it. Yeah. So um, we had talked about you know somebody buying the total mobile. And uh, the contract for maintenance is, is is pretty intense. You know, we built the totemobile to last ten years of constant cycles. Right, that's 
how the machine was built. How do you divide that in the lifespan of, of a collector? You know, um, you know, how often will they run it? How often do they have to maintain it so it doesn't kill somebody? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, so yeah, please go on. That makes sense. That makes sense. I just that, wondered if, if that made sense because people ask me that question all the time. That, that does. And, you know, one of the things I'm trying to tease out across these um, podcasts is sort of, you know, there's a lot of people with creative impulse and a lot of people with a lot of talent. What's the difference between those who were able to do this sustainably, you know, to make it more the focus of their life versus just people toiling away in obscurity. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's something that troubles me considerably. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I've met over my, you know, my years, um, so many extremely talented people who uh, suffer often from mental illness and art feeds their brilliance, you know, mm -hmm. art allows them to stay alive in their mind. And then, but yet, they're, they might be so dysfunctional that they nobody is out there to help them uh, get the stuff out there. Yeah. And if they were able to get this stuff out there, they might be able to maintain a more a, a, a stability in their life and nurture that work to become better. So often who's out there in the art world are people who who are a first and foremost, great managers of their career. Mm -hmm. Second. They might be good creatives or they use a bunch of creatives and, mm -hmm. and, and, and hire creatives to do the work for them, but they're good managers, you know, like the Jeff Koons, for instance, you know, um, the, uh, the, they just have these massive teams of people who they just pluck out of art school and, and it's a management system. It's about, it's about making financial money, you know, it's yeah. about, about money first and foremost. And I think what's most important first and foremost is, is genuine ideas Mm -hmm. And finding your own way to manifest that. And, and, you know, what I tell students all the time is to keep, keep track of your ideas and keep, keep thinking about your ideas, even if all you can afford is a notebook for the first five years before you get an opportunity. Yeah. Right. Because you're, you're building up your ideas. And then when you have that moment, you have to go for it. There's, there's going to be an opportunity that comes to you and you have to hop on man, and take that ride and give it everything you have. That's how you break out. But I mean, people who want to be artists, they, the most important part is being true to themselves. And when yeah. they find themselves in their work, they're going to produce something unique. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, I see that as an interesting thing. And as, as I watched the art world unfold over the last several years from the perspective of being in New York, you know, Often, uh, my my the people that I knew hung out with or sought conversations out with were doing amazing work, and more often yeah. than not, they weren't. They had alternative ways to survive, and they weren't yeah. making a lot of money. Because once they made a lot of money in the art world, there's like, okay, give me a dozen more exactly like that last one, and I'll sell them. And they're trapped in their studio producing the same thing over and over again. Often, and the ones who who can control that narrative mm -hmm. those are the ones who really get to take advantage of having money working mm -hmm. on what they want right yeah when they're stuck having to build what the gallery wants them to build uh by the way that was my that was what didn't work for me with the gallery world of new york when i went to galleries or they came to me 
they wanted me to produce like these robots just like this, but this scale so that they could sell them. And they wanted a lot of them. And basically it meant, wow, I don't have an opportunity to work in freedom anymore. I have mm -hmm. to manifest this piece of my world for you over and over again for profit. I'd love to get your thought on where this movement of robotic art is heading. I've sort of been interviewing a series of people who kind of come out of the 70s and 80s and have continued to do amazing things. But what is the next generation up to? And, you know, who, who's picking up the mantle? Who's doing exciting things? And where do you think this is heading? Well, I guess I like what I'd like to say first and foremost, and maybe you're getting to this, is that like, um, in a way, um, there's a there's like three generations of innovators who have kind of led the way to this. Mm -hmm. I think today it's like there's an extraordinary amount of individuals who want to do this stuff now. Yeah. Right. During Mark Mark Pauline's era, or or even going back to like his hero or my hero, the Jean Ting Lees from you know way back, mm -hmm. you know making these early machines, um, you know. Gene Ting Lee's had his historic sort of moment, you know. There's even a museum in Basel dedicated to his his work. Mm -hmm. I think I think there's um, and it's interesting because people like Mark Pauline or Matt Heckard or even Cal and 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 uh, uh, just you got to meet Brett Goldstone. Um, there's this guy Arnaldo Morales in New York who you should you should talk to. Uh, he's he's a he's a he's a Puerto Rican machine artist. So he makes mm -hmm. amazing things. Uh, all these people uh, haven't, you know, there, there's been shows or surveys about machine art, mm -hmm. but there hasn't been an opportunity to really um, do a survey of, of this very important work. So what's interesting is as machine art evolved over say, the last 40, 50 years, I would mm -hmm. say, right? There's been this incredible period. There hasn't been an important survey of the work because museums fear the you know uh, the maintenance or keeping them running and all that stuff but that's part of it you know that needs to be grasped and done there needs to be a, a show about these artists and um and not like stopping at the machine art because then what picks up really quickly is the advent of a technological based art where things aren't handcrafted where you're using video projectors computers and all these things and there's very little handcrafted work so that period is a whole other period. And so the machine art stuff was bypassed in terms of like the gallery, the sales. And yeah. Stuff that you can buy, get the parts ordered, buy the DVD, assemble it when you want to, you set it up in your living room, you got its instructions. It's the kind of stuff that, you know, Steve uh, Sachs can, can sell really well. But these these cumbersome machine installations where they run on this, that, and the other are really hard to sell. But they need their moment because everybody owes it to those actions, those periods, those important people. Yeah. And there's people going all the way back to the 40s, 50s, 30s even that are important in that. Now, this new generation of artists who have um, maybe didn't even ever see any of this stuff. Like, um, you know about Theo Janssen. The strong beasts, right? In the Netherlands, the, yes. the Dutch oh, yes. artist who does the strong Because they came to the Exploratorium and I went and saw them with my kids. He makes these gigantic walking machines that are driven by the wind on the beach. 
Right. So that's that's Teo Janssen. Teo, Teo is closing in on 80. Right. So Teo's almost 80. So he's been working on these things in this, this just dedicated fashion for all these years. And he in his 70s, he's had more financial success. These things have been touring around the world in containers in his 70s, right? So Teo, uh, you know, and all he wants to do is go to the beach and get these things to the next level. That's all he wants to do. And he works with, with material that's donated. His, he, he, you know, he has enough money to carry out his work and that's all he wants to do. And, and you know, he, he survives by showing these things, uh, these containers ship all over the world, just like what you saw, right? So he, he informed so many generations of, of, of kids and, and the next, the next, the next, the next ones. And, you know, um, I think, I think uh, people like that who are so dedicated to their work are, are gems, you know, mm-hmm. if you look at their work, how it's grown over 30, 40, 50 years, it's amazing. Today, the kid who's working for me, who's 20 at RPI, he's studying engineering. He's brilliant. But what's more amazing is his tiny little drawings. He makes these tiny little drawings hmm. that are astonishingly detailed. He's playing music. He's an engineer. Hidden. He's, he's an artist hidden in engineering uh, uh, school, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the tools that kids have access to today can help them move remarkably quick. But at the end of the day, the work for the new era has to be a manifestation of those tools and where their mind and their dedication can take them, right? Because that's going to be a whole nother level. So I think it's it's like there's no question that this is this is the era of um, this is the era of, of of everybody's ability to make machines if they want to. One one side footnote that I have, which is, I think I think the fact that that all these artists practicing on these things get overshadowed by uh, a trend, you know, mm-hmm. where somebody somebody who is a graphic artist uh, becomes the most financially successful uh, artist uh, of modern history without even ever wanting to be an artist is is kind of super uh, super bummer for the artists who have been laboring for 40 years on, on stuff and they haven't yeah. sold these, right? So there's this incredible imbalance of what's been happening in the art world. And mind you, when uh, 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 an artist is picked up by uh, money, mm-hmm. catapulted, you know, and turned into this uh, sellable thing, um, that really warps the whole rest of the art world because that person isn't necessarily any more valuable than this this artist we were talking about who's a, a depressant who, who's no one's ever seen their work yeah but but the financial system has gotten behind them and and turned them into gold right but they're not necessarily valid right. to the other artists which is interesting right I mean, which is exactly what we're seeing with this sort of nft movement right. um and, and you know, point, I, by the way Okay, I, that, yeah. with the way of, of of taking a little slight cut at the garbage that's just sold for yeah. millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. It's not it's not even a person who claims to be an artist. Never was an artist. Just a graphic person, you know. That that's right, and, and you know, I mean, they are doing their thing, and, and may even agree with much of your what you're saying. Um, but it is sort of 
the heist, challenge. The heist of the century. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple more things before we close out. One very quickly. I've noticed you've interacted quite a bit with China. And do you think, is there an interesting machine art movement going on there that's kind of its own thing? Is that something that you have insight into? Yeah, so I do have some insight into it. I think, uh, well, it's a very important Chinese curator uh, by the name of Zhang Ga, mm -hmm. uh, Z-H-A-N-G, capital G-A. He's based in Brooklyn, and um, he's been, he's he has his finger on the pulse of machine art around the world. That guy yeah. And so I've been in several shows in China, and, and he's been very interested in, in that aspect of new media. Super interesting shows at the National Art Museum. Uh, so I guess I would say I've shown in China more than anywhere else in the last several years. Uh, and of the Chinese artists I've met there, there's some very interesting ones. So there's there's some uh, much uh, a generation before me mm -hmm. artists who who were doing, uh, you know, I would say 40, 50 years ago, their access to uh, art, the, the the new media stuff was a lot less, and it has everything to do with the government getting behind it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, some of the young artists I met who were just out of out of uh, these new uh, kind of new media art uh, universities mm -hmm. or programs were, you know, had access to everything, you know, and, 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 and in the same way, um, you know, having uh, the ability to pr produce things with a whole team of Chinese assistants, it's remarkable what, what is able to come out of that. So, um, the, I, I would say the possibilities there are are uh, are endless mm -hmm. for for things happening in the future for sure, and um, uh, I also want to say like it's like in the um, early in the in the early nineties in Japan, the things that were happening there, the people I got to meet and, mm -hmm. and being produced in Japan, are the similar kind of people who are who are being produced in in China today, right? So not to mention, uh, if you have the opportunity to go work in a in a factory there to be an artist in residence at a factory, because what can be built there is 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 endless, yeah. is endless right? So you would think, or you would hope, with all the conversation going on with our trillions that we can spend today mm -hmm. to bring innovation back to America, that those kinds of things would really come back here, and that artists would get an opportunity to lead. Um, to lead through innovation here because they're having to go to places like China, right? Yeah. So I think um, I think the, the secret formula for success at everything is to involve uh, more artists in these projects, give them residencies to open up these new uh, fabulous uh, technologies, you know? Yeah. Thanks to Chico for joining us and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. If you like this interview, please subscribe in your podcast app and leave a comment. If you'd like to reach out with any suggestions of people I should interview or any other feedback, you can email me at artrobotdeath, spelt as one word with no punctuations, at gmail.com. I look forward to being with you on the next episode.